0: Welcome to Role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour, episode 79 Chainmail, Blackmoor, and City State of the Invincible Overlord. All right, so before we dive into this week's subject material, I once again wanted to apologize for the audio quality. As I mentioned last week, we're still in the process of getting the new studio set up so we can record all of our stuff in it. It's not quite done, so I'm recording in an alternate site and the acoustics aren't quite as good in here. My goal is to have things up and running next week, so fingers crossed. Okay, over the course of this podcast, I've covered a lot of older games as well as a whole lot of newer ones. However, while I've alluded to today's topics on more than one occasion... It's been requested by more than just a few listeners that it's about time I gave all this OG stuff a little more love. So today, that's what we're going to do. That means it's time to crank up the tour bus and hit the first stop on today's tour. Now, I first mentioned Chainmail way back in the second episode of this podcast, noting that it was one of the inspirations for Dungeons & Dragons. Now, what I didn't do at the time was break the game down on a greater level. Today, we rectified that mistake. Chainmail is a medieval miniature war game created by Gary Gygax and Jeff Perrin, but we'll get to them more in a minute. The history of the game goes back a bit further than Gygax and Perrin. In 1967, Harry Bodenstedt created a medieval war game called Siege of Brodenburg, and it was designed to be used with 40mm minis. Gary Gygax first became acquainted with that game at the first Gen Con in 1968, and he played the game at the convention. The rules for the game had been published in an issue of Strategy and Tactics magazine, which was a magazine for miniature wargamers, and Jeff Perrin used those rules as the inspiration for his own medieval game, then shared the rules he'd written with Gygax. Now, what's gonna seem strange to you is that the initial set of rules Perrin created were only four pages long. Gygax took over the editing process, expanded the rules, then published them as Geneva Medieval Miniatures in Panzerfaust magazine in April of 1970. Panzerfaust was yet another magazine for miniature enthusiasts, so we're keeping our historical accuracy here. Now they revised the rules again, then published them in the newsletter of the Castle and Crusade Society called the Domesday Book using the title LGTSA Miniature Rules. They appeared in issue number five in July of 1970, and the minis they used were the one-tenth scale. Later on, there were additional rules laid out in the pages of the Domesday book that brought man-to-man combat as well as jousting. These rules used the one-to-one scale for figs. Gary Gygax met fellow gamer Don Lowry at Gen Con 3 in 1970, and when Lowry eventually founded Gygax Games, Gygax signed up with him. Gygax was specifically founded to publish a series of rules called Wargaming with Miniatures. The first full game published was Gygax's further expansions of the rules he'd previously written up, this time called Chainmail. The first edition was released by Gaiden Games in 1971 as the first miniature war game, as well as one of the three debut products the company released. What made this version different from the others is that there was a 14-page fantasy supplement that included figures like heroes, superheroes, and wizards. It also had creatures like elves, orcs, and dragons. Now, as we discussed both in the very first D&D episode as well as the Gary Gygax episode, the works of Tolkien, Robert E. Howard, Paul Anderson, and Michael Moorcock were frequently referenced in Chainmail, and players were encouraged to fight battles based on some of their fantasy fiction. Upon its release, Chainmail quickly became the bestseller for Gaiden Games, selling about 100 copies a month. The success of the first edition meant a second edition was going to be released. They cleaned up a few of the rules, as well as the situation they'd caused with the artwork in first edition, as that had basically been used without the permission of the original artist, Jack Coggin. New artwork was commissioned, and it was used for this new edition. When Gygax formed TSR with Dave Arnson and others, he stated that at some point he'd like to get the rights to Chainmail for TSR to publish. Late in 1974, they got the rights not only to Chainmail, but also to other items from the Guidon catalog. TSR released their first edition of Chainmail in 1975, and eight different printings were done between 1975 and 1985. Needless to say, Chainmail is no longer printed, and used copies are darn near impossible to get your hands on. So if you're interested in a copy of the rules, you're probably going to need to find a PDF somewhere, and I'd suggest starting with Drive-Thru RPG and make your way from there. I can only think of one other time we've done a deep dive on the system of a miniature game, and that was with Warhammer. Today's going to be the second. The mass combat rules for chainmail were heavily influenced by the systems created by Tony Bath and were intended to be used for a 1 to 20 figure scale, which means 1 figure equals 20 units. Troops are divided into six types, light foot, heavy foot, armored foot, light horse, medium horse, and heavy horse. Melee is resolved by rolling six-sided dice, and the number of dice rolled depends on the type of troops attacking and defending, with a chart that details what amount you use. There are additional rules that handle missile and artillery fire, movement and terrain, charging, troop fatigue, morale, taking prisoners. Those are all possibilities in chainmail. Ergo, you need rules to cover them. Now I mentioned the man-to-man rules, which would again necessitate that one-to-one scale. Gygax borrowed those from a contributor to the Domesday Book number seven, but he supposedly lost the name of that contributor, so he had to anonymously publish the rules. These rules became the Appendix B of Chainmail, and it's a chart that lays out various weapon types to armor levels and provides the needed to hit rolls for a melee round. The man-to-man system uses 2d6 to determine whether a kill is made. Now, I also mentioned jousting, so let's expand on that a bit. The rules for jousting were adapted from rules created and published by the Castle and Crusade Society in Domesday Book Number 6, then reprinted in Domesday Number 13. The rules were initially designed for postal play, which would allow members of the society to participate in joust tournaments to raise their standing in the society. For the record, D&D refers to jousting matches using the Chainmail rules. Gygax took his first steps towards what would eventually become Dungeons & Dragons with the Appendix E chart in Chainmail. That chart laid out what die rolls were needed in battles between fantastic creatures, which I detailed a moment ago. The fantasy element was further expanded in the first supplement released for Chainmail, which added elementals, magic swords, and some spells, of which Fireball and Lightning Bolt were the first two. Gygax again borrowed from Tony Bath by giving some of the figure types saving throws to resist spell effects. We also saw the beginning of Alignment, as creatures were divided in either the Law or Chaos spheres, and that was inspired by the Alignment theories of Paul Anderson and Michael Moorcock's Elric series of novels. When fighting a fantasy creature regular troop fight, the fantasy creature is treated as one of the six basic troop types as charted in the appendices. While the creation of Dungeons & Dragons pretty much spelled the end for Chainmail, for the most part, it was still near and dear to Gary Gygax's heart, as you would expect. In the July 1978 issue of The Dragon, he noted that for the first few years of D&D, players didn't really use minis in gameplay. Instead, it was more what we'd call today theater of the mind. When visual aids were needed, they were usually dice or hand-drawn pictures. By 1976, he noted that there was a movement from the players for minis to use in a D&D game. So in that year, Swords and Spells was a rule supplement released for D&D, and it provided mass combat rules for the game at one to 10 scale and one to one scale. Tim Kask referred to Swords and Spells as the grandson of Chainmail, and Gygax didn't disagree with that. Gygax noted that while the fantasy supplement for Chainmail had focused on the 1-to-1 scale, there were no mass fantasy combat scales, which is why the 1-to-10 scale was added. Since then, the D&D world is sort of split on the concept of miniatures. Some tables demand them, while others don't seem to care one way or the other. By the way, there's, there's no right answer. Run your game the way you want, and let the haters hate. So as we've discussed multiple times over the course of this podcast, Chainmail was Gary Gygax's inspiration for Dungeons & Dragons. However, the actual role-playing game inspiration came from Dave Arneson, who created a game that is, believe it or not, still played by a few groups of players around the world. Blackmore. To be completely honest here, Blackmore is the name for the setting in D&D, but its origins come with a different name. Blackmoor was originally developed off of the David Wesley Bronstein games, using Dwayne Jenkins' Brownstone variant and riffs on Arneson's wargaming sessions. And, just like IGAX, Arneson had started working fantasy elements into his wargames before expanding into a full-on role-playing game. While the initial inspiration for Blackmoor were Conan novels and gothic horror, Arneson would also add Lord of the Rings and Dark Shadows as inspirations, and looked at the concepts, if not the actual rules themselves, from the fantasy supplement rules from Chainmail. Blackmore was a campaign centered on individual PCs capable of a series of progressions, which of course required players to cooperate if they wanted to succeed, which made Blackmore way different than war games. The creation of the Castle and Crusade Society can be credited with being the origin point for the Blackmore setting. Now, I've mentioned this before, but the Castle and Crusade Society was a subgroup of the International Federation of Wargaming, which of course meant they specialized in medieval miniature wargame combat. Arneson was one of the first to join the Society in April of 1970, and most of the rest of his Twin Cities game group followed suit. Within a few months of its creation, the leadership of the Society decided to form what they called a Great Kingdom, awarding parcels of land to members of the organization. The idea was that the various members of the society would battle over the parcels, with the thought being maybe one or two members could take the lot. Maybe. Arneson decided to take responsibility for the far northern reaches of the Great Kingdom, and the medieval games he staged there lead up to the Blackmoor setting being developed. He, in fact, announced the first campaign in the pages of his fanzine, Corner of the Table. Quote, there will be a medieval Bronstein, April 17, 1971, at the home of Dave Arneson, from 1,300 hours to 2,400 hours, with refreshments being available on the usual basis. It will feature mythical creatures and a poker game under the Trolls' bridge between sunup and sundown, end quote. In the very next issue, he promised, quote, the start of the Black Moors Battle Reports, a series dealing with the perils of living in medieval Europe, end quote. The original idea was that the Northern Marches were supposed to be an ongoing multiplayer war game, with the idea being to bring Bronstein games into the mix along the way. At the start, the Barony of Blackmoor was the centerpiece, and the players attached to it were the forces of good. Over time, the roles of the various players grew, expanded, and in some cases changed completely. In fact, some went from being really good to being somewhat bad. Arneson wrote up descriptions of the activities of his games in a new sheet called the Blackmore Gazette and Rumormonger. This drew in more players as they got excited by and interested in what Arneson was doing. By 1972, the dungeon exploration mechanic he'd created became the major focus of the game itself. As the demand for Blackmore increased, Arneson had to farm out refereeing duties. By the way, the referee is what the GM was called back in the day. and He farmed those duties out to other players he trusted in his local circle. Oh, and for those who don't know what a news sheet would be today, think of it as the physical equivalent to a blog post. In the summer of 1972, Arneson wrote an article that detailed facts about Blackmore that appeared in Domesday book number 13. This article is historic in the history of role-playing games, as it's the article that brought what he'd been doing locally to the attention of the rest of the Castle and Crusade Society. In the fall of that year, Arneson demonstrated the game for Gary Gygax, and the two began work on what would become Dungeons & Dragons. Arneson didn't stop running Blackmoor, though. What did change was that he was coordinating his work with Gygax's Greyhawk campaign being run out of Lake Geneva. When Arneson left Minneapolis to continue work for TSR in Lake Geneva, the Blackmore campaign continued for a time, but without their leader to hold things together, the sessions became less and less frequent until the campaign essentially ceased. Since we're up to the creation and release of Dungeons & Dragons, it's time to discuss Blackmore's entry into that system. The original Blackmore product released by TSR came out in 1975 and was the second supplement for the system. Of course, Gygax's Greyhawk had been the first. The booklet got its name from Arneson's world, which makes sense since he wrote the booklet. It added rules, monsters, treasure, and the first published adventure, the Temple of the Frog, which had been lifted from the Loch Gloman section of Arneson's Blackmoor campaign. Other than the Temple of the Frog, no other Blackmoor-setting-specific information was provided at the time. Arneson went outside the TSR umbrella for the next publication concerning Blackmoor. Judges Guild published The First Fantasy Campaign in 1977, written by Arneson. This book provided more information on the Blackmoor campaign setting. It got into serious details, providing baronies, citadels, the history of leaders, as well as details on the Blackmoor dungeon. He also included rules for creating lairs, as well as character interests and vocations. Now, while I presented the first fantasy campaign as a a wholly new work, it was actually a collection of multiple sets of materials Arneson had written up over the years, ranging from Magic Swords from 1971 and going all the way through the Blackmoor dungeons he ran at conventions in 1976. He did write some new material, but it wasn't much, mostly link text for all the other information. However, all of the maps and some of the illustrations were redrawn and re-lettered by Bob Bledsaw for Judges Guild. This is how Arneson got around any TSR-related issues towards the publication of the materials. It was pretty much all stuff he'd created prior to TSR's creation, or it was a recreation. From a historical perspective, the first fantasy campaign preserved tons of pre-D&D materials, which otherwise might have been lost to history, since gamers at the time weren't necessarily keeping all of the letters and notes they'd taken. A couple of examples of saved materials are the article Facts About Blackmore from Domesday Book number 13 and the pre-1972 price lists and rules, from the period of the exile of the Blackmore Bunch to Loch Gloman in late spring of 1972. One interesting thing about that first printing in 1977 is that all of it, including the illustrations, were in black and white. It consisted of 92 numbered pages, plus the cover, inside cover, back cover, and the table of contents, which brings the total number of pages to 96. Later printings had a dark red cover and were reformatted with smaller font and fewer pages. Now, As we discussed in the Dave Arneson episode of this podcast, he left TSR in the early 1980s. Blackmoor, however, didn't leave with him. It continued to be a big part of the D&D universe and was either referred to in lore or had modules released for it. That being said, it still never got a full campaign setting released for TSR. Speaking of the modules, they've become legendary in their own right and I'll try to cover them specifically in another episode. However, for those keeping score at home, they are DA1, Adventures in Blackmoor, DA2, Temple of the Frog, DA3, City of the Gods, and DA4, The Duchy of Ten. After DA4 was published, TSR never returned to the setting. They continued to make references toward it, but they never specifically got back to it. That's not to say Blackmoor was never published again. Once TSR had dumped the basic D&D game and the Mystara setting that had continually referenced Blackmoor, The setting basically reverted back to Arneson, per the agreement he made with TSR when he left. Zeitgeist Games later produced a D20 of the Blackmoor story they called Dave Arneson's Blackmoor campaign setting, and Goodman Games released it in 2004. Goodman and Zeitgeist also hooked up to produce adventures for the system. In 2009, Code Monkey Publishing released Dave Arneson's Blackmoor, the first campaign, updating it for the fourth edition of D&D. To this point, Blackmore hasn't come back to the D&D world officially, but if you look around on the interwebs, you'll find a number of fans of the setting that have produced their own unofficial product. And maybe, just maybe, we'll see it again in a future edition of D&D. Last up on our tour today is City State of the Invincible Overlord. It's a game supplement originally published by Judges Guild and intended to be used with D&D. In fact, TSR officially approved it from 1976 through 1983. But let's get into a deeper dive of the history, shall we? As I noted in the episode on Judges Guild, the company was formed in 1976 with the goal of selling subscriptions to GMs. Bob Bedslaw and Bill Owen founded the company and the two immediately started work on a large map that was inspired by Bledsaw's home D&D game. The idea was to have a product available as soon as possible to drive sales. City State of the Invincible Overlord was the final product, and it debuted at Gen Con 9 in 1976. Reports of sales numbers for the setting show that over 40,000 units were sold by 1981. Needless to say, City State of the Invincible Overlord launched Judges Guild into being an actual game company. They made it the centerpiece of Wilderlands of High Fantasy, which was the first ever licensed campaign setting published for D&D. When Judges Guild stopped the publication of Wilderlands, Judges Guild licensed City State of the Invincible Overlord and its related line to Mayfair Games, who published their version of it from 1987 to 1989. In early 1999, long after the dissolution of Judges Guild, Bob Bledsaw brought it back as an internet company selling products that had spent a lot of time basically being warehoused. A brand new printing of City State of the Invincible Overlord was one of the first products to come out of this venture, dropping in 1999. Judges Guild announced their partnership with Necromancer Games in June of 2002 and they started releasing Judges Guild product in 2003. They updated both City State of the Invincible Overlord and Wilderlands of High Fantasy to Collector's Editions and released them in 2004 and 2005, respectively. Since the 2004 release, there haven't been any new releases, but thanks to the power of the internet, PDF copies are available on sites like DriveThruRPG. Let's take a brief, but closer, look at some of the various components of the setting. City State of the Invincible Overlord is a single city setting, basically. The city, a dwarven fortress in town called Thunderhold, was designed to not only be the base for the campaigning group, but also a seed for city-based adventures. Another product released by Judges Guild, Wraith Overlord, got into an exploration of the city's subterranean cellars, sewers, and catacombs. Now when Judges Guild was publishing it, which as we mentioned was from 76 to 83, it contained an overview of the city, a large 34 by 44 inch four page map of the town descriptions of notable inhabitants of the town, a table of random encounters, and a list of rumors the GM could use to seed adventures. The Mayfair Games Edition was a box set that had a four-page introduction, an 80-page map and population book, a 32-page background and encounter book, a large, full-color map with the city on the front, and an island campaign setting on the back, by the way, a large player's map, a 16-page adventure book, four 8-page race guides, and two plastic overlay sheets for city and wilderness travel. And a partridge and a pear tree. Oh, <clears throat> sorry, we're getting around to that time of year. Couldn't help myself. Like I said, it was a brief look. But before we wrap, let's get a couple of reviews in. In the October-November 1977 edition of White Dwarf, Don Turnbull gave a thumbs up to the 1977 Judges Guild edition, noting, quote, The result is something of a triumph, a labor of love, and considerable headache for the designer and coordinator. It should be welcome in any fantasy gamer's collection. End quote. Jim Bramba took a look at the 1987 Mayfair edition for the August 1988 Dragon Magazine. He admitted to being impressed with the production quality, calling it, quote, an impressive-looking package, end quote. But he also admitted to being disappointed with the actual contents when compared to the Judges Guild versions, noting, quote, Gone are the winding alleys and jumbled buildings now replaced by a pretty but unconvincing suburban playground buildings stand in their own spacious grounds, making the city look like nothing more than a sprawling village enclosed by stout stone walls. No longer are there alleys to get mugged in after dark. Gone are the overcrowded streets. This city is a town planner's dream. As such, it is hardly the stuff of a bustling fantasy city. End quote. And with that, we come to the end of today's tour. Next week, I'm going to check out something a little different. The Amber Diceless role-playing game. In the meanwhile, check out our other podcast, Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. We're on the second episode of our new season, and we're building for the Fallout game this go-around. This week's episode gets into the specifics of character creation, so if you want to play, this is an episode you don't want to miss. Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your royalty-free, license-free music needs. Role-playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash badgmprod. On Twitter at badgmp. YouTube and Tumblr. We're on both places at badgmproductions. You can email us at badgmproductions at gmail.com. And our website, as I've said already, is badgmproductions.com net next week we get diceless which should be interesting but that's next week until then i'm wayne davis and your role-playing history